This week's episode of the Aletheia podcast is in memory of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Philando Castile, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Eric Gardner, Michelle Shirley, and every other innocent black person in this country who has been killed for no reason other than the color of their skin. This cannot continue. And this is what we're talking about this week. Please listen carefully. Because this week, we're dealing with some very heavy topics. And if you consider yourself an American, forget that. If you consider yourself a good person, then listen. And listen well. Now, I know you're probably thinking, Alex, this is supposed to be a science and health show. Why are you talking about politics this week? Okay, look. I know what I purport to do on this channel, but if you've looked around the world recently, specifically if you looked at anything that's going on in the United States over the last couple of weeks, you have to understand that this is kind of a pertinent topic. And you might be wondering, well, what does police brutality have anything to do with science and health? And the short answer is it doesn't. What it does have to do with is over 400 years of systemic violence against black people in our country. But as a person with a platform and a voice, and as an American, I have a responsibility to talk about things that are important. And that includes issues that do fall within the scope of what I do on this channel. And one of those things is healthcare. The truth is, systemic violence against black people in our country has manifested in a variety of ways. Martin Luther King Jr. himself said that of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. And while the country is having a much-needed conversation about the role of policing and systemic violence against black people, the truth is, violence isn't just a police officer shooting you for the color of your skin. It's a bank denying you a loan for the color of your skin. It's the people who do city planning lining districts around the color of your skin. And, in many cases in this country... It's about healthcare providers not giving you the treatment that you deserve that they would give to anyone else because of the color of your skin. And if you're one of those all lives matters idiots who thinks that this type of thing doesn't happen in our country, well, I have a message for you. This is a personal screw you from all of us who have an IQ above room temperature who know that that's not how things work. So, if that statement applies to you, hang on to your MAGA hats. I'm about to educate you. Hi, my name's Alex Joseph. You're a friendly neighborhood, sleep-deprived pre-med, here to make science a little more user-friendly and the world a little less full of lies. This is the Ulethia Podcast. In order to even begin to understand the racial disparities that exist in healthcare, you have to understand something about this. This isn't just about the treatment that you receive in the hospital. Racial disparities in healthcare can take a variety of forms, including how you get into the situation where you need it in the first place. Because the structures of the system that are currently in place predispose black people in our country to being at a disadvantage in terms of their health care. And that goes all the way back to segregation, just like most things do in our modern society, whether you realize it or not. For instance, one very common example of how this is true is the obesity epidemic, specifically in communities that are predominantly occupied by black people. 
Surveys by the United States Department of Health actually indicate that black children in the United States are 1.5 times more likely to be obese during, or overweight during their childhood. That is a 50% greater likelihood compared to white children. That's a big deal. But why do these disparities exist? Well, let's go back and take a little bit of a history lesson. Yes, I know, a little bit off-brand for me, but bear with me for a moment because this is important. Let's talk about a little phenomenon called redlining. You see, starting in the 1930s, because this is when a lot of black citizens of the U.S. started to try and gain prominence in our society, much to the dismay of their white counterparts who were largely in power at the time, and quite frankly still are. This is when banks in the U.S. started engaging in a process called redlining. Redlining is where banks would systematically draw off districts on the maps that they had that they would refuse to give loans to, or even worse, engage in predatory lending to. What this resulted in was that people who tried to get a loan, say, for better housing, who were from predominantly black communities, were unable to do so. And as a result, they were stuck in their segregated communities and couldn't move out even if they wanted to. This is largely the reason why many predominantly black communities back in the 1960s are still predominantly black today. Because even though the practice of redlining was technically made illegal at the end of the 1960s and through the 70s, the fact is, if your family had been prevented from creating generational wealth, which is something people usually do by purchasing better housing, for all up until two generations ago, it's really hard to get to the same level that most other people in this country who have had generations to do so, to improve their education, to improve their housing status. You really can't compete if that is the case. And that's what we've seen in a lot of these low-income neighborhoods. So that's why people who are from predominantly black communities from back in the day, their current descendants are still likely there because they weren't ever able to leave. They didn't have the generational wealth to be able to leave those communities. What's more, in districts that are predominantly black, that are predominantly populated by people from these low-income neighborhoods, you realize that a lot of the programs in the local area are funded by property taxes. So, newsflash, if you live in a low-income neighborhood and all of your services in the local district rely on property taxes, you're not getting exactly Beverly Hills level amenities. And that translates to everything. That goes down to school funding and even to local recreation programs. That's why low-income neighborhoods typically have a lot fewer parks or things like that. What's more, low-income neighborhoods also don't have, as I mentioned before, a lot of recreational programs at schools because their schools, consequently, do not have as adequate funding. That's also why SAT scores and academic performance is typically lower in these neighborhoods as well. The school simply has fewer resources. And that translates to a lack of recreational programs like extracurricular sports. Their sports teams just don't have as much funding in these neighborhoods as well. If you combine that with the fact that school lunch programs aren't as well funded and the lack of otherwise recreational activities for children, you end up with a lot of kids facing obesity, among other problems that are obvious with low-income neighborhoods. But that's just one of the ways that systemic racism has actually affected the health of black people in our country. Another problem facing the black community is addiction, which contrary to your belief, Karen, is a disease and not a choice. 
reflective of an underlying neurological pathology that results from an overdependence on a particular substance that stimulates one or more neural pathways. In English, the use of a drug, even just one time, can shift your brain chemistry to make it so that your body literally needs it in order to function properly. Yes, you might choose to use it for the first time, but the next three, four, or hundred times you use it after that aren't exactly a choice. Your body may genuinely feel that you need the substance as much as you need water, which is why withdrawal symptoms can be so drastic. In milder cases, sure, you're talking headaches, maybe an upset stomach. But in more wild cases, it can drive people almost erratic. People are screaming for the substances that they crave, and it can cause a variety of chronic health issues for them. Which is why, for a lot of people, quitting can be extremely difficult. And believe it or not, the system has targeted black people for it particularly well. This goes back to something called mandatory minimum sentencing, which, among other things, is the reason for America's mass incarceration program, which largely targets only black and Latino people, especially black people. See, mandatory minimums are derived out of the ludicrous war on drugs that were started in the later part of the 20th century, propagated first by Nixon and then continued by Ronald Reagan and basically every other Republican president after him. What ended up happening is that they ascribed minimum sentences to offenders with certain drugs in an effort to discourage people from using them. This is really stupid for a variety of reasons. One, this is like punishing people for having cancer. Yes, you can get cancer by making poor life choices. It doesn't mean you deserve to be incarcerated for it. The same thing applies to drugs. But here's the thing. Mandatory minimum sentences affect different drugs differently. For instance, take cocaine. A familiar subject for certain Ivy League students. So if you're listening to this, one, add me on LinkedIn. Two, pay attention because this may affect you or someone you love. Owning one gram of powdered cocaine gets you 1% of the sentence for owning one gram of crack cocaine. And which demographic is more likely than any other to use crack in the United States? Hint, it's not white people. It's black people. What's particularly interesting to me is that people will continue to deny that mandatory minimums are racist, even though these laws were put into place well before and then continued through the 1980s when black communities were systematically flooded by crack cocaine. How am I saying the U.S. government allowed for this to happen? <laughs> no, I mean, come on. It's not like during the 1980s the CIA was too busy screwing around with the Contras in Nicaragua to actually notice or perhaps even allow crack to flood into black communities because if I said that, the CIA would definitely come after me and there's a good possibility I would be uh, disappeared. So I'm not going to say that. What I am going to say is that there are people who know a lot more about the subject than me that might have insinuated it, and I'll let you do your own research and make your conclusions from that. Look, even if this didn't happen, what you can't deny is the effect of mandatory minimum sentencing. The fact is, it systematically targets black people in this country for drugs that they predominantly use. And what's more, if you factor in how much of an effect this will have on addiction within their communities, the results aren't looking pretty. 
This is why this is a problem, because when people go to jail for drug offenses, it doesn't discourage them from being addicted because they didn't resolve the underlying neurological pathology that is causing them to continue to be addicted. This is why countries like Portugal that implement healthcare-based solutions to people with addictions work. But perhaps one of the more heartbreaking cases that we see of this is when the disparities come at the doctor's office themselves. Because the doctor's office is a place that you expect to go to be treated as humanly as possible. To have someone reassure you, to help you through the process of getting healthier. The reality, however, is not quite as comforting. Let's take a really simple example. For instance, something you might go to the emergency room for, like a broken bone. A study published by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that when patients went to an emergency room for extremity fractures, fractures in your arm or your leg, that while white patients typically received analgesics, another word for painkillers, up to 74% of the time, when the patient was black, even at the same hospital, typically they only received them 57% of the time. That is an extremely troubling figure. And it's especially concerning when you realize the reason for which this might be true. The same study in a random sampling of resident doctors concluded that up to 25% of them believed that black people have naturally thicker skin than white people. Now, I'm not a trained geneticist yet, but I'm more than halfway through my degree at this point in molecular biology, which is basically a fancy way of saying I study genetics every single day. I can tell you without even a shadow of a doubt that there is no biological basis for race. What do I mean? Well, you see, skin color is a fairly arbitrary trait in terms of genetic differences. It's almost as irrelevant as hair color or the color of your eyes. And while this certainly isn't to say that it doesn't have an impact on the way we view people, after all, clearly our society has historically had a very large influence by race. What I'm saying is that biologically speaking, there is no actual reason to think that there are genetic differences between black and white people. After all, when you actually analyze the variable differences between our societally prescribed race groups, you'll find that there's often more overlap between groups. And what's interesting is that while the average range for any specific genetic trait are relatively similar between racial groups, there's often more variation within racial groups than there is between them. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you analyze, say, the middle 50% of all data points for all races for any given trait, you would find that that middle percent of all the data points tends to overlap at some point between all of the different races. However, the ranges for any given race and any given trait is astronomical. Humans have so much genetic diversity as it is that ascribing race as the most significant of them doesn't even make sense. But when you think that these differences do exist, you tend to practice faulty medicine. This is why it's important to have a valid biological understanding of race, to understand that it's not a very important thing, especially in determining biological characteristics. Unfortunately, however, this doesn't really seem to be the case, as that same study went on to show that several medical students, even second-year ones who had started their clinical rotations and had supposedly learned everything they needed to know to start practicing their skills in the real world, also displayed this kind of bias. 
As John Oliver's segment on Last Week Tonight pointed out when he did an episode on this back in 2019, second year medical students often believed that black people had less sensitive nerve endings than white people. This is extremely disturbing. Although the number wasn't a majority, it was still up to 14% of them. That is up to 14% of future doctors graduate medical school still believing that black people are less susceptible to pain than white people are. And this can have some pretty disastrous effects. This is why, although the analgesics thing was one example, black people are often chronically undertreated for a variety of conditions. According to several studies, this can include things ranging from cancer to myocardial infarctions. A myocardial infarction, by the way, is the medical term for a heart attack. That's right, black people in the United States were systematically found to be undertreated for heart attacks when compared to white people, even adjusting for the same hospital, the same professions, and a variety of other factors. In fact, what seemed to be the only differentiating factor between whether or not the appropriate treatment was given in the majority of cases was the race of the patient involved. This is extremely disturbing. But where does this all come from? Why would doctors, people who swear an oath to protect the general population regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, or any of the things that make us different as human beings hold such biases that cause them to not properly treat people? Well, the answer, like many things, has its roots in history. Unfortunately, in the United States, a lot of medical experimentation and a lot of our quote-unquote knowledge about black people in medicine started with doctors during the slave era. And during these times, a lot of doctors liked to conduct experiments on black people, particularly on black women, as they felt that they, for whatever reason, had thicker skin or didn't experience pain. In fact, this was a widely held belief prior to the Civil War. And indeed, it turns out that this belief seemed to continue long after. All you need to do is to look at some of the medical research that has come out of the post-war era, and you realize that a lot of it was not conducted very ethically. One of the most famous examples of this is the infamous Tuskegee studies, which black men were subjected to one of the most horrendous clinical trials in all of history. The study examined about 600 black men who either had or didn't have syphilis and monitored the outcomes of the disease. Now, on a face value, you might think that this isn't inherently bad. But what was particularly awful about this study was that, one, the black men involved in the study weren't given proper health care. These people were not treated with the same standard of care that white people were for syphilis at the time. And what's particularly horrifying is that many of these men were not even informed as to what it was they were being examined for. It only tracked their outcomes. The researchers involved in the study knew for certain that they had syphilis. And yet many of the black men in the study were only told that they were diagnosed with bad blood, which is a blanket term which, yes, can sometimes include syphilis, but might also have referred to things like anemia or severe fatigue. That is... These men had no idea what it was they were actually being examined for and were not given the same standard of treatment that other people were. The only thing that this study proved 
was how horrifying medical research can be when people consider you less than human. The study has since gone down in infamy as one of the most egregious violations of ethical standards in the medical community and in medical research in all of United States history. And rightly so, because syphilis, if left untreated, can cause severe brain damage. In fact, it can even do this sometimes in cases where doctors do try and treat it, especially back then. And the most frightening part of all of this is that this study started in the 1930s and continued for another 40 years. My parents were born in the 1970s when this study ended. Most of the people listening to this have parents who were born within that time frame. It is horrifying to know that within the lifetimes of the people who raised our generation, that such atrocities, such crimes against humanity, and such disregard for human life were still going on within our country. And it only gets worse if you continue to look at the history of medical research within our country. This is where we discuss a topic that many of you who, like me, are in the biological sciences might be familiar with. In 1951, a young woman named Henrietta Lacks visited the Johns Hopkins Hospital, complaining of abdominal pain, especially in her lower pelvic region. Upon analysis, her doctor concluded that she had cervical cancer. Like he did for many of his patients, the doctor examined some of the cells from Henrietta Lacks's body after she began her radium treatments. But what he noticed was astounding. While most of the cells that he acquired from his other patients would simply die off within a few days, Henrietta Lacks's cells would double every 20 to 24 hours. They were seemingly immortal. He thus dubbed them by her initials, HeLa, and called them HeLa cells, and they have been used for research ever since. But here's the problem. Henrietta Lacks never once agreed to this. She was not given the option to consent to this procedure. She was not given the option to consent to her cells being used for research purposes. The United States now recognizes, as do most developed countries in the world, that in order for any portion of a human being's body to be used in a research study, the subject from which it was collected has to be able to give informed consent. That is, they have to be fully aware of what they are allowing for their cells, their tissue to be used for, and then and only then can they consent to it. And then after that consent has been given, it may be used for research. But this was not the case for Henrietta Lacks. And the famous HeLa cells were used for decades after for biological research. This is morbidly horrifying. The idea that a black woman could be violated in this way, simply because she wasn't seen as equal to her white counterparts, is astounding. And it remains a subject of great debate to this day. Now, while HeLa cells aren't given out all willy-nilly like they used to be, in fact, a review board at Johns Hopkins University, which now contains two members of Henrietta Lacks's family, now conducts reviews of who is allowed to access these cells. But it doesn't change the fact that Henrietta Lacks died the very same year she was diagnosed with these. 
That doesn't change the fact that unbeknownst to her, for decades after, her own biological tissue would be used for studies because nobody thought to ask her whether or not she consented because nobody cared what she thought. And it begs the question, would this have happened if Henrietta Lacks was a white woman? Now, what do I want you to take away from this? Well, it's simple. Societally, we have for decades and even centuries undervalued the experiences of black people. We've seen that even physicians, people who swear an oath to do no harm, to treat all people equally, are subject to internal biases that can affect whether or not they actually give people treatment. Because there are recorded cases of physicians not taking people's stories seriously simply because of the color of their skin. One of the more heartbreaking instances of this is the unfortunate story of Kiara Johnson. After a scheduled C-section for her second son, Kiara Johnson began to complain of a lot of pain that she was experiencing in her abdomen. Her husband, Charles, pleaded with doctors to take his wife's complaints seriously, but they didn't. And when they finally looked into it, it was too late. Her bladder had been cut as a complication from the cesarean section, and nobody had noticed her internal bleeding until it was too late. Mrs. Johnson passed away at the age of 39, and her husband, Charles, to this day, is left to raise their two children alone. This was unacceptable. Now, you might think that this doesn't have anything to do with race. I mean, the doctors could just as easily have ignored her pain, and that's honestly true. After all, women are actually more likely to be ignored by doctors in comparison to men's pain as well. But the facts don't lie. While the United States is already one of the most dangerous places in the developed world for a mother to give birth to her child, you are four times more likely to die as a result of a complication of childbirth if you are black in the United States, controlling for every other factor, whether it's socioeconomic status, your location, or even your profession, regardless of all other factors, you are four times more likely to die while giving birth to your child if you are black in the United States. And that is unacceptable. All of this is unacceptable. So what do we do about this? Because on the one hand, yes, there are systemic issues that lead to worse health outcomes for black people, but then there are also biases at the healthcare level that result in black people not even getting the treatment they deserve for these conditions. So how do we deal with this? Well, the answer isn't simple. We have to address systemic issues, but we also have to address biases that healthcare professionals have. So. We have to address multiple problems at once. On the one hand, we need more community funding. This is one of the reasons why people say defunding the police and reinvesting some of this money into community programs is likely a good solution. Just think about it this way. If even a fraction of the millions of dollars that the New York Police Department spends on policing every year was used to uplift predominantly black neighborhoods like Harlem and their education systems, don't you think that maybe kids in those areas would be able to afford better school lunches, have more access to recreational activities, and as a result, have better health outcomes? 
Is it so much of a stretch to suggest that maybe instead of gentrifying black communities, we could start to focus on bringing in community programs or opening up more grocery stores, providing spaces for them to do those kinds of things rather than making a neighborhood look quote unquote nicer because for some reason people think that less black people in a neighborhood makes a neighborhood look more affluent. It is these kinds of things that we need to talk about at a structural level. Making sure that black communities get the same resources and opportunities that other neighborhoods do. Because the fact is, these communities are going to need the assistance that they haven't been getting for generations in order to do this. Keep in mind, redlining ended two generations ago. It's as if you shot somebody at the knee at the starting line, held them back from running for the first 400 meters of the race, then let them go and started yelling at them for not making it to the finish line at the same time as the person who had every advantage from the moment that the starting gun was fired. We need to acknowledge these problems and work as a country in order to fix them. Because the fact is, black people have not had the same opportunities that white people had in this country. And yes, I'm not saying white people don't have it hard. Everybody has challenges that they face throughout their life. But there is not a single system person or any experience in the United States that you can have that discriminates against you solely because you're white. And before you bring affirmative action to this, let me just tell you, as an Indian American, if I can understand why affirmative action is necessary, you can too. Get over yourself, Kyle. But on a more serious note, we have to understand that this isn't just a systemic issue. We need to unpack these biases before they happen in the healthcare system as well. Race sensitivity training for physicians should be a mandatory part of medical education. Physicians will deal with all kinds of people from all walks of life, and it's not just them. Race sensitivity for researchers, nurses, physician's assistants, even dentists are all extremely important. We need to be taking these things into account because everyone deserves the same standard of care regardless of what they look like or where they are from. So while I know that this was a bit more of a serious episode, and I've joked about world-killing pandemics before on this show, this time I didn't find anything really all that funny. This time I felt a need to address issues that have continued to plague our existence for centuries. And have continued to make life disproportionately harder for people just because they are black in our country. And we need to start addressing this. A lot of people on the All Lives Matter side of this movement like to bring up Martin Luther King. They like to say that this isn't the way to do it. That this isn't the way to protest. That this isn't the way to argue. And I ask to those people, what is the right way then? If people enslaved your people as a result of the color of your skin for centuries, beat you into submission with segregation, wouldn't even let you buy a house outside of your old family's neighborhood because of the color of your skin, systematically denied you educational opportunities, and then when you had the audacity to go to a doctor because somebody beat you up for the color of your skin, they wouldn't even take your pain as seriously. What is the right way to protest all of these issues? And on top of that, the cops don't want to look your way or with even an ounce of compassion because of the color of your skin. What is the right way to protest all of that? 
Many of you can't even handle being told to put on a mask to prevent spreading a deadly disease to other people. And you have the audacity to tell people who are being killed that this isn't the right way to protest. Look, we all go through our challenges. But until you've opened your eyes to see the plight of your fellow brothers and sisters, until you have realized that not everybody faces the same problems that you do, until you realize that there are issues you don't see but that you can help be a part of the solution of, you are part of the problem. And healthcare disparities is what I talked about on this channel because that's the issue I know. But it is far worse for a whole lot of people than just that. So educate yourself. Research beyond what I told you in this podcast. Realize that there are a plethora of issues that continue to plague people just because of what they look like. And understand that your compassion and your ability to fight against injustice is the only thing that can help us to move forward. I'd like to end with one last thing. And it's honestly kind of funny every time I hear this. People often say, if you don't like it here, leave. If you have such a problem with America, why don't you just leave? And how un-American is that? Is not our government founded on the principles of change? Is not our government one that supposedly stands for the people? If the people have a grievance, don't they have a right to voice it? It is idiotic to think that pointing out your country's flaws is an act of treachery, but it is patriotic to know that your country can be better and to work to make it so. So for all of you who are calling Black Lives Matter an American, for all of you who scorn healthcare workers who scorn people who are trying to make this country a better place that works for more people because America has not always been great for everyone who wasn't white and male for all those of you who look down upon those who are trying to make this country great for everyone remember what it means to really be a patriot so think on that the next time you're tempted to say something like, well, all lives matter. Because if you really believe that, you would be out there fighting just as hard as anyone else to make sure that it stayed that way for everyone. Thanks for tuning in.